Thankfully for that song, and thank you all for being here this morning and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. This is a uh, we've kind of come through the, the the summer months, even though it's still hot outside. We've kind of come through those months, and the, when school starts back, that seems to always mark things for us. And so I know a lot of us have been traveling on vacation. It's good to see a lot of you back this morning. We're excited that you're here. And uh, just so you know, we've been studying through the book of uh, 1 John now for, uh, I think this is our 14th or 5th, I don't know, it's at the top of your thing there, 14th or 15th sermon in uh, 1 John. And we're going to continue that this morning. So if you've been away for a little while, that's where we are. And today we're going to find ourselves in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you have, would you take them out and turn with me to that passage? As I was preparing this morning's sermon and thinking along all the the things of, of what we've been looking at in the book of 1 John over the last uh, about three months or so, been thinking through that, I was reminded of something that was drilled into me at one point in my life in, in years past when I, when I was in sales. I was in sales uh, working for a company up in Gainesville, Georgia, in which we sold poultry biologics. And, and uh, at that particular point, I was given a sales uh, accounts that, that dealt with, with selling sanitation supplies into the hatcheries that, that, that hatch all the chickens. Now, it sounds like an exciting job. I can see how many of you are excited about that now. My territory stemmed from Georgia to Alabama to Mississippi. I took parts of lower part of Tennessee and upper parts of Florida, and, and I had a lot of driving time, a lot of windshield time is what they call it, going around looking at different things. And, 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 and inevitably, what you do as a salesperson, many of you know what that is, you're trying to get where you can get in front of the right people who make the decisions who can buy your products. And, and you can spend a lot of time in front of the wrong folks. You want to get in front of the right folks, the people who can actually tell you and, urge, and issue a purchase order. And so I would try to get those appointments made and, and go out there. And inevitably, I'd put my, my product list in front of them and we'd talk. And then I would always get this one pushback. They would tell me, well, you know what, Craig? Everything sounds good, but you're... Your prices are just a little high. And I, you know, I, I understood that. And the fact of the matter was, our prices were higher than my competitors. They, they were more expensive. But here's where my job came in. My job came in to help them understand that you couldn't just assume or you couldn't just pay attention to that one thing. Price was not the only factor involved in making the decision. As a matter of fact, what I would tell them was is that you have to consider other factors when you're going to make a purchase, and I would say this is a case not just for those that I was trying to sell to, but it's a case for all of us as well. What, I, what was drilled into me and what I learned, especially since we were sort of in an agricultural climate, was I learned another agricultural analogy. It's called the three-legged milk stool. Now, some of you have heard of that before. Some of you may not. My minister of music had never heard of this before in his life, so he's going to get an education this morning about what a three-legged milk stool is. Here's the thing, is a three-legged milk stool is a, is a stool that a farmer uses when he goes to milk the cow. Now, the th now, now the, here's the thing. It's got three legs on it. If you emphasize one leg over the other two, the, the, the stool won't sit correctly and the farmer's going to fall off. Well, that's exactly what I would tell my potential customers. If you just pay attention to price, then you ignore the other two sides of it, which are this, the quality of the product. I would tell them that my product, if I matched it up against my competitors, my products inevitably always would withstand that comparison and we would always win. The second side of it was this. I provided them service, not only in, in the, the kind of service that comes in and makes sure they were using the product correctly, but we would go in and do testing for them to make sure that it was doing, having the effect that it was supposed to have. I said, when you take all three of those things together, then you can really make 
an informed decision because the three-legged milk stool is in place. You're looking not only at the quality of the product, you're looking at the service that's being provided, and then you also look at the price. Now, the reason why I went into all that deal this morning is because those three legs tell you what a good milk stool is supposed to look like. It tells you, because if you get one that's longer than the other, the farmer falls off, as I said earlier. As I was studying this week and, and just kind of contemplating back on 1 John, I realized, in many ways, John was kind of building his own three-legged milk stool through this entire epistle. Now, I'm not saying that that's what he was thinking about when he was writing it, but as we look back on it, we can see some things. Because what has John been trying to assure us of? He's taken us, we've looked at again and again and again, and we've got, referred to the verse, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I want you to know that you have life and that you can have assurance in your salvation. He wanted to make sure that his readers knew what they could go to to assure themselves in their hearts that they truly had a relationship with Christ and that they truly had eternal life. And so he provided them with three tests, and we've seen these tests repeatedly throughout this entire book. And the three tests are simply this. There's the love test, there's the obedience test, and there's the faith test. Love, obedience, and faith. And what we're going to see this morning is that all of those really are intertwined with one another. Though they are separate in and of themselves, we really cannot talk about one without the implications flowing to the other two. As a matter of fact, that causes me to kind of state something for you up front. I put it in your bulletin. It's a preliminary uh, statement that I want us to keep in the back of our minds as we go through our text this morning. And, the, and it really is this. The tests of love, obedience, and faith that give evidence of the new birth, they're not isolated from each other. Love, obedience, and faith, as they give evidence of the fact that we have been born of God, born again, those tests are not isolated from one another. I want us to keep that in the back of our minds as we go to the text this morning and hear what John has written for us in his epistle. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, John writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit and says this, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your Word and we thank you for what it teaches us and we thank you that you have given it to us and that we can be absolutely assured and confident that it is true and that it speaks truth into our lives. Not only that, but it is the life-giving truth. It is something that brings life to us, we who are dead in our trespasses and sins. And it gives us assurance and confidence of that which awaits those of us who have been born of God. I pray today that you would encourage our hearts by what we read. I pray that you would convict us of areas where we fall short of, of a, a true obedience to you. I pray that you would help us to understand how this word is to apply to our lives. And that as we leave this place, that we would leave here changed by the power of your Holy Spirit, working through your word 
to bring about that change in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the reason that I felt it necessary really to provide you that initial statement that I've given to you in your outline is because really these tests, the love test, the obedience test, the faith test, what we're going to see in our text today is that they are so interwoven with one another that it's really difficult to talk about one without discussing the other two. As a matter of fact, John Stott has written this uh, about this particular passage. He says, The three tests are so closely woven together into a single coherent fabric that it's difficult to unpick and disentangle the threads. They all issue forth one to the next. Now, notice that John begins by discussing the issue of faith. That's how verse 1 starts. He begins by saying, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, what John is pointing to here, he's talking about the new birth. He's talking about, he's talking about what takes place, the spiritual birth, what takes place in us when, when, when God breathes his life into us and gifts us with his Holy Spirit. You'll remember back in John's Gospel, in John chapter 3, there's this famous interaction that takes place with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, sort of clandestinely, because he really didn't want anybody to know he was coming talking to him, but he recognized something about Jesus that really intrigued him. And so he came, and they had this interaction in John chapter 3, and as a result of that, when, when Jesus spoke these words to, to Nicodemus, he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus just couldn't get his head around that statement. It blew him away. He couldn't quite understand what it was that Jesus was saying. And so he, he, he responded back to Jesus in this way and said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, obviously, Nicodemus was, was talking and thinking about the new birth in response to a physical birth. He didn't get his mind wrapped around the spiritual side of things. And, and Jesus chides him on that. And he says, that which is born of flesh is, fl is flesh, but that which is born of spirit, capital S, in other words, the spirit of God, he said, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And Nicodemus still, he's flummoxed. He can't, he can't get his head around what Jesus is saying. So Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And what he says there is that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, whoever believes in him should not perish, have eternal life. And it's right after that, it's right after Jesus making that statement that we have that most famous verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, what's interesting about that, what comes from that whole interchange between Nicodemus and Jesus there in John 3 is that what we learn is that the new birth is tied to a proper belief in Jesus Christ as God's Son who would ultimately be lifted up to die on a cross. And when He died on the cross, He died on the cross in order to save sinners from their sins. And what we learn further is that that new birth is a spiritual birth. It is spiritual in nature, and it is confirmed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. John had already written back in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says, but as many as received him, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, and to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friend, understand this. 
The new birth comes as a result of God's miraculous work in your life, breathing His breath into your life, bringing the Spirit of God into your life so that you may truly be able to respond to Him. That is what the, that is what the new birth is all about. It's what it means to be saved. It's what it means to be born again. It's what it means to be born from above, to be moved from the realm of darkness and death into the realm of light and life. That is what... God does when he saves us. This is the way Paul describes it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. That's the new birth. That's what it's all about. And that's exactly what John is talking about here in chapter 5, verse 1 of his epistle. He's talking about this new birth and he says it's tied to faith. It is tied to belief in Jesus as the Christ. And we're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. But I wanted to set that stage for you because immediately on the heels of talking about faith in Christ, John immediately moves to discussing love. It's like they come one right, it's like as soon as he gets to talking about faith, the next words out of his mouth, he begins to talk about love. And he talks about love for one another. As a matter of fact, one author has written it this way. He says, the road to love is paved with faith in Jesus Christ. John says, and everyone who loves him who begot, in other words, everyone who loves God the Heavenly Father because they have become children of God, he says that same person also loves him who is begotten of him. In other words, if you're going to love God, then it is a necessity that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ who are also born of God. You can't say you love God and not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, John has said this repeatedly. This isn't the first time that he's made this point. In fact, he's made it over and over and over again throughout our text. As a matter of fact, let me just state for you the love test. I want to give you a summary of what the love test is. It's the first point on your outline this morning. The first point on your outline is the love test. And for me to state it simply, I, I put it this way. One who has been born of God will love God and others born of God. Does that make sense? One who's been born of God will love God and will love others who have been born of God. That's the love test that John keeps pointing us back to throughout this epistle. He told us, if you remember back in chapter 2, he says that he who says he is in the light and hates his brother, he's in the darkness. He's not in the light. On the contrary, he says this, if, you, if, you, uh, if love for your brother abides in you, then you walk in the light. That's how John describes it. You want to test? There it is. Just in the last chapter, in chapter 4, he, he made the same point again. He said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Later, he said, this is the commandment that we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. He ties a relationship to Christ, a relationship of faith in Christ, to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again and again, we've seen that. And we've seen that it's not enough just simply for a believer to say that he or she loves God. No. John tells us that loving God must stimulate us to love one another. And therefore, our love for our brothers and sisters, our love for others who have also been born again and are born of God, that is a test that you and I must pass. And listen, when we do pass it, it gives us evidence, it gives us proof of our new birth. That's the first thing that John tells us in this passage. 
But in all that discussion, did you also recognize that not only was love for one another tied to a true and abiding faith in Jesus, remember that's the way he started this passage. He started by talking about belief in Jesus Christ as, the, the, as Jesus as the Christ. But John also not only connects love or connects faith to love, but then he connects obedience to love. Did you notice how he did that? Notice that he connects our love for one another to our being able to keep God's commandments, to obeying God's commandments. He's done this over and over throughout this book as well. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 4, verse 21, John wrote this. He says, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You see how those are tied together? Loving, loving your brother is connected to keeping the commandment of God. He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 23. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 23, you find all three legs of the milk stool coming together in one verse. Listen to what he writes there. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. Do you hear how all three of those come together in that one verse? And then in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he says, And this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness, in other words, whoever does not do the will of God, whoever does not live in the will of God, well, that person is one who uh, is, is, is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. In other words, he blends those two together. If you're not doing the will of God, if you're not doing it, if you're not loving your brother. So you see in John's mind, he doesn't separate these things out into two different, three different categories. They all overlap. They all intertwine. And what he, un, what he makes us understand is, is they go together. Look at, look at back to what he says in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. What that tells us is that the love of God not only will be evidenced by our love for one another, but it will also be evidenced by our obedience. And here's something else that ought to be in, in understood. When we talk about our love for God, the Bible does not give so much of a credibility to this, this sort of an emotional, sappy experience of a bunch of warm, fuzzy feelings that we get toward God. That's not how the Bible describes our love for God. Our love for God is described in much more tangible terms, much more practical ways. It's an experiential love that is, it is made evident to others by our practical engagement with the people that God has placed around us. It's a practical, active demonstration of compliance with His demands and with, with a submission to His will. That's how God, that's how the Bible here defines what love for God truly is. It's a keeping of His commandments. Therefore, let me give you the second point on your outline this morning. The second point really is a summary of what the obedience test is all about. And that summary is this. One who has been born of God will willingly keep God's commandments. One who has been born of God will willingly keep God's commandments. That's the obedience test. Now, when I was putting this outline together, I intentionally put the word willingly there in that point. Lots of times you throw out adverbs. They don't necessarily help a sentence. I intentionally put an adverb in this sentence. 
I wanted you to see that willingly is an important part of this sentence. I could have just said that one who has been born of God will keep God's commandments, and that's absolutely true. But I put this word there, willingly, because I believe that this passage emphasizes that God's children who have experienced the new birth and claim to love God, listen, we cannot be indifferent to God's commands. Nor should we adopt an attitude that goes something like this. Oh, well, God says I've got to do it. And I really don't want to, but I guess I will. It ain't what I want to do, but God told me I got to, and I know he'll wind up making me do it anyway, so I'm going to do it. Listen, those of you who are parents and you're raising kids or maybe you've already raised your children, let me ask you this question. If you send your child to their room to clean their room and they sit there and go, I guess I will. I don't want to, but I know I'm going to get in trouble if I don't, and he's going to wind up grounding me or taking my iPhone away from me or something like that. I might as well go up there. Does that really engender within you the fact that your child loves you? and respects you and honors you when that's the way that they respond to you? Absolutely not. My dad's here. (laughs) He used to tell this story. I think he was talking about me, but he used to tell this story about a kid that was always getting in trouble and he was rambunctious and he's running around and doing stuff all the time. And he was doing this one particular day and the dad had just had enough and he says, I want you to come in here and I want you to sit down right here and be quiet. And the boy realized that he had to go do that because his dad was telling him or his dad would physically make him do it. So the boy came and he sat down, but he had one last act of defiance that he had to say. And he looked at him and he says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing up. (laughs) Is that the kind of obedience that, that, that John's writing about? Is that what John would have us To understand is the way that we're supposed to obey God? Listen, no. Nothing could be really farther from the truth than that. He's not talking about an attitude that that, that just does it just because he knows he has to and he does it with regret and with with spite in their heart. No. John says his his, his commandments are not burdensome. What he tells us is that when our hearts have truly been changed, when we truly love God, when we recognize that God is for us, He's not against us, when we recognize that what God wants for us, His will is perfect and and good for us, then we will obey Him. Why? Because we know that He knows what's best. And we want to please Him. We want to honor Him. His, His commands are not grievous. They're not irksome. They're not aggravating. They're not burdensome. Listen, the Jews, they found all those regulations and the rules that the Pharisees had heaped upon them to be burdensome. Matter of fact, the Jews and the scribes, they'd come back and added over 600 different rules and regulations they added to the Ten Commandments. Why? Because they figured if, you, if they could make enough rules that are farther outside of those ten and you could keep them, then you'd never get close enough to the ten to break them. And what the Jews realized was is that they had rules about everything. And those rules became such a burden in their lives. It became a very legalistic understanding of what it meant to follow God. Jesus came along. Jesus spoke to the people in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. 
and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't miss what Jesus tells us there. He tells us to take His yoke upon ourselves. We are to assume obedience to Him. We are to assume His yoke upon us. But listen, unlike those yokes and the burdens of the Pharisees which weighed us down and break us and, and, and crush us, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden's light. In fact, it's when we obey God, when we live in obedience to Him, when we recognize His love for us and His goodness toward us, it's then that it frees us up to live the life that we desire to live. Finally, we can live rightly with one another. Why? Because Jesus says, my way is a way that brings life to you. It lifts the burdens rather than the burden of sin that presses you down. Therefore, we willingly keep God's commands. We willingly obey Him. Why? Because we love Him. And we know that He loves us. And we believe and we trust that what He commands for us to do is good for us and it is for His glory. Now let me be quick to add that just because God commands us to do something does not mean that we can do it on our own. In fact, Jesus made that very clear. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. As a matter of fact, we know full well that we cannot go live the life that God has called us to live in our own power and on our own strength. We will fall every time. And the fact that we have the ability to obey then gives testimony to what John is saying. That is an assurance for us that we have been connected to God through His Holy Spirit. Because it is by the Spirit working in us that we even have the ability to obey God and to live according to His commands. As a matter of fact, John Stott has written this. He says, The commandments of God today appear intolerably burdensome to the world. But to the children of God, they are not grievous. Why? Well, because he says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. John says this in verses 4 and 5, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And here we come back to the whole issue of faith again. You see, we started in verse 1. It says, those who are born of God are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Here in verse 5, what we see is who, he who overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Consequently, what we can say is those who have been born of God in the past, they are the same ones who will overcome the world in the future. And what connects those two things in verse 1 and verse 5? Faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Therefore, there's the third test. The third test is the faith test, and let me summarize it for you this way. On your outline, you will find it here. One who has been born of God will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's the faith test. Now, in the time that I have left, what I want to draw out for you is what he says in verses 4 and 5 related to faith. There's three times in those two verses that John uses the phrase, overcomes the world. Did you notice that when we read through there? He says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that over, has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Three times he says overcome the world. He uses the word victory one time in there. Now let me just tell you, in the Greek, all four of those times comes from the same root stem. Word in the Greek that's nike. That's, that's, the, 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 
That's the subject form of it. That's the noun form is Nike. We would get the word an overcomer from that word. But the word victory comes from that word as well. The, the, the verbal form of that word would be Nikeo, which we would say overcomes, makes it a verb. And what he says here is that in all four of those, that's, that's the same word, by the way, that we get the term Nike, our shoes. Nike comes from that word. It means to conquer. It means to be victorious. It means to overpower. It means to win. That's why the founder of Nike chose that word for his shoes so that he could market it that way. But that's what those words mean. And it's interesting that, that, that John ties overcoming, overpowering, being victorious, living, living in power. He ties that to a faith in Christ. Did you notice that? And that should make sense to us because Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, He tells us, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome. I have nikeo. I have overcome the world. Friends, it is only possible when we are connected to Christ that we will ever overcome the world. We have no ability to overcome. We have no ability to be victorious unless we are connected by faith to Jesus. What is that victory? What are we overcoming? What is this world he's talking about? Well, we've seen in past studies, we recognize that the world is comprised of, of limited and transitory powers that are opposed to God, the powers of Satan, the powers of his demons. But we might also understand that to overcome also means that we are overcoming the moral pressures of a society in which we live, the, the outlooks and the standards and, and the preoccupation of this godless culture in which we live. And certainly those of us who desire to live godly lives and Christian lives according to the moral standards of the Bible, we recognize that there is a constant pressing in upon us from the society out there to alter our views and to change our understandings of what the Scriptures teach. But what these words tell us here is that we are not to look, and, we, and many times we wring our hands and wonder, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to say? Where is our help going to come from? Listen, the psalmist had the same question. In Psalm 121, the psalmist had that same concern. He asks himself the same question, then he answers it. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And then he answers his own question. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Friend, our help, our victory, our ability to overcome this world comes only from the Lord. And in Him, our victory is assured. I think of what's written by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For your sake we are killed all day long, it is written. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And then Paul writes this, yet in all things we are more than conquerors. Same word, through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, understand this. If by faith we have believed on Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior sent by God to redeem us from our sins, by bearing the burden of our sins upon the cross, if we have trusted in Him, 
If we have turned our backs on our sin and upon our allegiance to this world, the Bible tells us that we will be victorious. We will overcome this world and all of its pressures and all of its troubles and all of its tribulations. Why? Because Jesus Christ has overcome this world. And let me say this to you as well. I know this is an election year. And I know that many of you sitting out there are like me. You're concerned about where our country is headed and what, uh, what is in front of us in the days and weeks and the months and the years ahead. I recognize that. But I want you to know this. Our victory will not belong to whomever wins this election, regardless of who it may be. Rather, John tells us that our victory that has overcome the world rests solely and completely in our faith in the one who has defeated death, hell, and the grave, and whom one day every knee shall bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father's. Brothers and sisters, as the old hymn writer has put it, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So in this passage, John has encouraged us. He has, he's provided us with hope. He's provided us with assurance that we truly belong to God and have experienced the new birth. And he's done it by giving us those three tests, that three-legged milk stool that he has made. He's told us that it comes to us by recognizing that we are to love our brothers and sisters just as we love God. And it tells us that when we love God, we will also obey him and we will live in accordance with his commands and that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God who has come to save us from our sins. And all of those things work together and are intertwined together and therefore that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Those who have experienced the new birth into the family of God will love their brothers and sisters, obey their Father's commands, and claim victory over the world through their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me ask you this morning, is that your testimony? Have you been born again? Have you by faith believed that Jesus is the Savior sent by God to save you from your sins? Friend, I want you to know you cannot save yourself. It requires a perfect, sinless, holy one to do that, and only Jesus Christ could do that. Only Jesus Christ could save you from your sins, and he did it by dying for you on the cross. And I want you to know he didn't remain dead. The Bible tells us that on the third day he rose again. And by rising again, he defeated death, he defeated hell, he defeated the grave, and he defeated Satan. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Do you believe that? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you given your heart to Him? Is the message of His gospel where your hope lies? Is your victory bound up in His victory? If not, then I invite you today to give your heart to Christ, to repent of your sins, to turn from them, to confess Him as Lord of your life. Will you do that? If you have, then let me ask you this. Has your faith issued forth in love for your brothers and sisters? Do you actively and decidedly put yourself in a place where you can love them sacrificially just as God has loved you? Are you living obediently? Are God's word to you such 
that you realize that they are precious to you and that your love for Him has to come in the form of living an obedient life. Are you serving Him? Are you loving others? Love, obedience, and faith. These are the three legs of this milk stool that we cannot sidestep. We cannot diminish their absolute importance and necessity in our lives. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.